event is coming to a conclusion. Over the last several months, as you all know, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John, just concluding chapter 6 last week uh, with Matthew's sermon, Um, and it's been, what, several months, several months that we've been preaching through that Gospel, and over and over and over as we preach through the Gospel of John, we continue to hear echoes of Isaiah, right? I know I pointed that out in the last several sermons that I, that I delivered, that Isaiah is kind of lurking in the background of John's writing constantly. We hear echoes of it in Revelation, the book of Revelation. We hear it in the gospel constantly. We even have Jesus referencing the book of Isaiah throughout his ministry, recorded in the gospel of John. And so this morning, I figured to to give us all a brief hiatus from the gospel of John, we would go to Isaiah. We would read through, preach through, think through, Um, this great Christmas message that we all know and hear throughout this season. So this morning, our focus is going to be on Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. You know these verses. You can probably quote them back to me. You can probably say them without thinking. And you've probably heard them many, many times already throughout this Advent season. But the connection with the Gospel of John is one that can leave somebody speechless in worship. As we see the connection of these testaments, as we see the Gospels reflected in Isaiah, and we see Isaiah reflected in the Gospels, all of which do exactly what? Point to Christ. Reveal Christ. Show Christ. And so this morning... Let's turn our attentions there to Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. This great poem, or, or hymn, or song. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad When they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for these texts that you have revealed, that you have given to us by these authors, by your spirit, Lord. For the purpose of revealing your son. So Lord, this morning as we preach through this this gospel text from Isaiah, Lord, reveal your son. As on the day in which Jesus was born, Lord, reveal your son. May your word be proclaimed. May our hearts be transformed. May your spirit do a work in us this morning and every day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So as is always the case, we're going to to begin with some context, right? Jumping into nine chapters into a, a book that we haven't touched or talked about. It's important that we do so. Now as we get into chapter nine, we find out in chapter seven that Ahaz is the king of Judah. Now Ahaz has a predicament, okay? So the predicament is that Israel, the northern kingdom, has allied itself with Assyria. Assyria, the great enemy. Israel, betraying God, allying itself with the enemy. And the threat is lurking. The threat is lurking. This is around the year 733, 732 B.C. 700 years before the birth of Christ. The book of Isaiah spans the years 783 to 686 B.C. Ahaz was king 735 to 716 B.C. And this looming threat for Judah, 733-732, right? The kingdoms have already been divided. The northern tribes, Israel, the southern, Judah. And Israel, as I said, has already turned its back on the Lord. Has allied itself with the great threat that lies to its north. And now, with their alliance, they are threatening Ahaz and Judah. They are threatening to come into Judah, to take over Judah, and to disperse the people. And so as a result, in chapter 7, Isaiah is sent to Ahaz. And Ahaz is given a decision. He must either trust God or trust himself. Those are the two options he has. right? As with all of us in some facet, maybe we don't have a whole country behind us in which we are making determinations and judgments for, but we have two decisions that lie before us. Trust the Lord, trust ourselves. And so we see Isaiah 7, chapter, or chapter 7, verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, talking about Israel. Ephraim is the northern tribes. Israel, the capital of Israel, is Samaria. The head of Ephraim is, is, is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Ramalia. That's the king of Israel who has allied itself with Assyria. And here's what Isaiah says. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Those are Isaiah's words to Ahaz. If you have no faith in God, your kingdom will have no foundation. If you have no faith that the Lord will deliver you out of this situation, your kingdom will have no foundation, is what is being said. And so this, this, this cool 
um, connection is put up here. Now there's sons that are listed off. As we go into chapter 7, we have these sons. We have Isaiah's son who goes with Isaiah to Ahaz to deliver this message. The son of Isaiah, Sheer Jashub is his name. And that means a remnant shall return. It's a word picture. You see, he's saying, bringing Isaiah, bringing his son along with him to deliver this message, is saying to Ahaz, if you are faithless, there will still be a remnant who remains. It's a promise. It's a promise. But there's another son who is listed. Another son. We see this in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord, will him, Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin Virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Another son. Another son. Because here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, verse 10 of chapter 7. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, ask for help. Ask for the Lord for deliverance. But here is what Ahaz says, verse 12. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. We hear this religious language that, that Ahaz uses to kind of say, no, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to trust in you. I'm not going to ask for your deliverance. And he shadows it. He hides it. In religious language, I will not put the Lord to the test. And so the Lord speaks this promise. Okay, Ahaz, since you will do nothing, since you will not do something to help your kingdom, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Ahaz, a faithless king who refuses the call of the Lord, refuses the words of Isaiah, refuses the call to faith, and therefore decides to trust him in himself. Verse 17 of 7, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah. And who is that? The king of Assyria. Since he chose not to stand in faith, his kingdom will flounder. There will be destruction. And then there's another word from Isaiah. Chapter 8, leading into chapter 9. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest to me. And I went to the prophetess, this is Isaiah speaking, I went to the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. So again, another son. And this son was named exactly what I just read. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. It's another word picture. For the kingdom of Judah. It's another word picture for Ahaz. Destruction is coming. So we have these two sons of Isaiah. 
his older son and his younger son. A remnant shall return, the spoil speeds, and the prey hastens. These two sons, a sign of hope in some way, the remnant, you will have a remnant, but to have a remnant implies what? To have a remnant implies destruction. To have a remnant implies that doom and destruction has come and there are some who remain. We have his second son. The spoil speeds. The prey hastens. Your time is coming. The time is coming. We have these two sons of Isaiah. We have this son promised in Isaiah 7. Not the same sons. Not referring to Isaiah's sons. This, this son that God will give. This sign from God. Whose name shall be Emmanuel. God with us. Then we come to our, our passage today. Chapter 9. Another promise. Another promise that is intimately connected to Emmanuel. The promise of the son born to the virgin. God with us. And there are, are three things that I want us to, to look at this morning. And the first of which is this. That even amid earthly darkness earthly darkness whatever it is that you are facing or the world is facing or those around you is facing a hope remains even amid earthly darkness a hope still remains think of the world that we are living in currently the battles over abortion, the battles over the definition of marriage, the battles within the church, arguments happening across the Twitter sphere, destroying each other, tearing each other down, the darkness, the evil, the wickedness. Think of even just the last few days, how many people have been stranded out on the roads having to get rescued. Those who have died in these storms, several in Buffalo, as I spoke to my father yesterday, have died in their homes because emergency services have been completely shut down. They can't get to homes. And emergencies happen in the home, and there's nothing. The darkness that we are surrounded with. Maybe your own personal lives, right? Something you might be struggling with on your own. Some temptation, some addiction, something you know is going to destroy you. Look at the church building this morning. All seven, eight of us that are here. The darkness, the lack of hope. We feel it so intensely. I know this morning, just to be transparent, as I got up here to preach and I was thinking about, there's seven of us here. leaves you questioning it leaves you questioning but this morning over the last several days as I've prepped this sermon it it speaks to me as well that there is still a hope that there is a hope darkness is quickly approaching for Judah right here's what the author here's what Isaiah records at the very end of chapter 8 verses 21 and 22 these are hopeless words they will pass through the land the remnant, these people. They will pass through the land, not happy, not joyful, but greatly distressed and hungry. 
Remember, they've been deported from their homes. Deportation. They have been exiled, removed. Think of Ezekiel and Daniel, right? These are prophets who have been uh, prophesying, working in exile. Death, destruction, homes gone, families torn apart, people taken away in bondage. This is them. This is Judah. This is what's coming because of the faithlessness. And when they are hungry... They will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against the king and against their God. They will turn their faces upward. They will look down to the earth. But behold, what waits for them? Distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish is what awaits them. And they will be what? Thrust into thick darkness. That is the conclusion of chapter 8. That is how Isaiah finishes this this portion. Those who have been faithless, and even the remnant, will be thrust into great darkness. They will be thrust into gloom, into anguish. As I said, what was their hope? What did they have to look forward to? It wasn't riches, big homes, uh, stable families that will last generations in this one place. No, it was deportation. It was exile. It was conquering. It was plundering. It was pillaging. It was destruction. It was death. That's what they had to look forward to. That was the conclusion of chapter 8. But, as I said, even amid this earthly darkness, there is still a hope that remains. For here is what the prophet writes in chapter 9. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Right Before, before there was a time, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, that is what they had to look forward to. But now, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. It's a complete juxtaposition, a complete reversal of what 8.22 says. There will be no gloom. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. You see, this darkness is approaching, and he specifically mentions these two tribes, these two regions of the northern kingdom, Naphtali and Zebulun. North, as far north in Israel as you can go. Think of the Sea of Galilee, the Mediterranean. You have Asher, you have Zebulun, you have Naphtali. The very northern part. Right along the Sea of Galilee. It is through this channel. It is through this land which the conquering Assyrians come. These are the first tribes to fall. So if you want to be really pragmatic about it, whose fault is it that the rest of Israel falls and destruction happens to Judah? Zebulun's, Naphtali's. They are the ones held in contempt. They are the ones who are immediately conquered and in which the enemy breaks through and enters into the kingdoms. They are the ones who in some way are responsible. They are the first to fall. The first to fall. And the rest like dominoes. However, the hope here is that these lands will no longer be held in contempt. These tribes, these regions in the northern kingdom will be made glorious. Will be made glorious. Their darkness is only temporary. 
you see the exchange that happens, right? From 8.22 to 9.1, the exchange that happens. Gloom, darkness, anguish. Glorious the way of the sea. He's made glorious the way of the sea. How so? How so has this happened? Think of the Gospel of John. Everything we have preached through so far, where has it taken place? In these lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. The Sea of Galilee, right? What has happened there? Jesus' ministry thus far that we have preached through in John. The calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. Where did they come from? Galilee. These first disciples came from Galilee. What is Jesus' title? Jesus of what? Of Nazareth. Guess where Nazareth is? It's in the land of Zebulun. It's in the land of Zebulun. Capernaum. Right? We just talked about all of the events that happened at Capernaum. As Jesus is calming the storm on the sea in the boat. As he is preaching all of these crowds. As he walks on the Sea of Galilee and goes to Capernaum where he's in the synagogue where we are in chapter 6. And he does this long dialogue of of, of him being the bread of life. Capernaum, Zebulun, Naphtali. This place that was once of utter darkness. This once that was a place of, of death and destruction. This, once, this place in which, which the enemy has walked through and destroyed. Is now, or was, the place in which the Messiah did his ministry and his work. The place in which God the Son, the incarnate God, did his earthly work. The cradle of the Savior's earthly work. And we have this term, the Galilee of the nations. It's the only place in all of scripture that this term is used. The Galilee of the nations. Why is that so important? Because I think it indicates that this message Isaiah is delivering is not one only for the Jews. This is a Galilee. This is bringing in of the nations, of the Gentiles. This is not a message of hope and deliverance only for ethnic Israel, only for ethnic Jews, but is one of such tremendous redemptive hope that the world is brought in. The nations are brought into this promise. So consider for yourself, Consider whatever it is that you might be dealing with, whatever it is you might be thinking as you look out onto this world, as you look out onto this church, as you look out onto the Twitter sphere, whatever it is, this darkness, it plagues all of us. This darkness, it plagues all of us. Devastation, gloom, hopelessness, it's the plague of humanity. It's our lot here on earth. And it is especially, especially our lot if we are not in Christ. But like Zebulun, like Naphtali, like this word delivered to Judah, even in the midst of such tremendous darkness, in the midst of such hopelessness and despair, Who is it that you will be like? Ahaz? 
I will not put God to the test using religious language to hide your faithful faithlessness or the opposite of what Ahaz was supposed to, or what Ahaz was supposed to be one who trusts in God one who trusts in God and has the firm foundation and not the sinking sand right you yourself are the sinking sand trusting in yourself will lead to only darkness in which no hope remains but even in the midst of our darkness if we have the son Emmanuel God with us Isaiah 7:14 then there is a light in the darkness and that leads to our second point this hope that we maintain this hope that we have is rooted in a promise that shall come to pass this hope think of think of like a like a train tunnel right those of you who have ridden the underground either in london or ridden the underground in new york city it's dark very dark you can't even see the walls two feet to your right but yet then you come towards the end of this tunnel and all of a sudden it's everything is illuminated you can see by the light that has shined through so it is with this hope and this promise so it is with this hope and this promise we have this hope that shines in and it is promised to us verses two to five Again, we're going to hear this juxtaposition of 8.22, the end of chapter 8, with now this hope and promise. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Again, this image of this subway tunnel in which the light all of a sudden breaks through and you can see again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown your despair, your brokenness, your sinfulness, your depravity, your ugliness, all of it in Christ. Upon that, a light has shown. And you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian for every boot of tramping warrior and battle tumult. Every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The promise. So what are these promises that we see here? First of which is the light that shines into the darkness. Those of you who have seen the Lord of the Rings movies or have read the book, you know the scene at Helm's Deep. All is lost. They're stuck in the castle. They are surrounded on every side. And then Gandalf arrives. And then Gandalf arrives, the Savior. And upon the darkness that is confronting these people, death, destruction, darkness shines the Savior, shines the Savior. And you see the promise here. You see the promise in which these people were facing, Israel and Judah, death and destruction, deportation, and then the light shines. And then the light shines. These words of Isaiah, the promise 
in which the remnant clings to, those faithful who have trusted in the promises. Hear this word from Isaiah. A light has shone. A great light has broken into this place of once utter darkness. This promise of a light that we can see and cling to. The second promise, verse 3a, the expansion of the nation. You have multiplied the nations. What does this mean? Does this mean that Israel expands its borders? Maybe. But remember at this minute, their borders are shrinking very quickly. And at some point in the very near future, they will no longer have borders. What does this mean? God's nation, God's kingdom will increase. God's nation, God's kingdom will increase. Sinners will see this great light. Sinners who are floundering, drowning in their hopelessness, drowning in their sin, drowning in whatever it is that they are battling with. They will see this great light. These nations will be multiplied. God's kingdom will increase. It will expand. That is the hope of missions. That is the hope of evangelism, right? Evangelism, missions exist because worship doesn't, to quote John Piper. And so God's nation, God's kingdom will expand. His worship will span the globe until the time of completion is done and he is ready to return. We also have another promise, joy and rejoicing. Again, this promise made to people facing certain death and certain deportation. They will have a time of rejoicing. Those of us who have been redeemed and bought back by this Emmanuel have great joy and rejoicing. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This morning when we woke up, right, the children, my children, I'm sure Casey's children, maybe even you guys, were thrilled about the things awaiting. You have your Christmas Eve or Christmas night dinner, the ham, the, the mashed potatoes, all of the food, the spread across the giant table. People gathered around in joy, in happiness, in laughter. Think of the nostalgic Christmas movies that you like to watch. Great joy and rejoicing at what lies ahead. The presence, the family, the togetherness. Take that great joy and multiply it exponentially. Because that is the joy that those in Christ are to have. Even in the midst of such darkness, there is a joy, not a happiness, but a joy and a rejoicing that we can cling to in such circumstances. That is the promise. Verses 4 and 5. There is a freedom from bondage. 
So we have a promise of what? Of a light breaking into our darkness. We have a promise of joy and rejoicing no matter what it is that we stand before, no matter what it is we are facing. We have a promise of freedom from bondage. This is an Exodus language right here. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken them. Exodus language. This is, this is bringing back memories of, of their distant past, of this time in which these people once enslaved in a land were freed miraculously by a work of God. In some ways, they were quite literally freed by blood placed over them. This bondage will be broken. This slavery will be destroyed. And then he mentions, Isaiah mentions Gideon, or Midian. He randomly throws in on the day of Midian at the end of this sentence. What is he referring to? Judges, chapter 6 and 7. Gideon, one of the judges. He was facing battle with Midian. He had these four tribes with him, men from Manasseh, from Asher, and guess what the other two? Zebulun and Naphtali, not ironically. 33,000 men he had to go and do battle with the Midianites. But in fear, God let them lead. Gideon was left with how many? 300. He goes from 33,000 to 300 men to do battle with this whole nation. And yet, only by the work of God is Gideon and the Israelites victorious. So you see here this, this theme in which this salvation that we have, this hope and this promise that we have are not fixed like Ahaz thinks. They're not fixed on himself. These promises, this hope, are fixed completely upon the work of God. The exodus. Only the work of God can do the work of the exodus. To free an entire nation out of bondage by blood put upon their families' homes. You see the connection to Christ. As with Gideon, 33,000 men down to 300 still victorious in battle over a whole nation. Only a work of God can do that. It is God who stirs up the confusion in the Midianite camp and gives Gideon the victory. These promises, their hope, the hope of verse 1 is rooted in these promises. Is rooted in these promises. God's kingdom expanding. Sinners being restored to God. The nations coming to know Christ. Our neighbors, our family members coming to know Jesus. Awakened to this hope. Us in the office, having conversation, sharing the gospel with these people. Sinners seeing this great hope. Joy and rejoicing, even in the midst of darkness. Right? Think of the martyrs in the Colosseum who are ready to be fed to the lions and the tigers and the wild beasts because they were Christians. Going joyfully to their deaths. Why? 
Not because they hoped in their own salvation. Not because they knew they would make it out of that Colosseum alive. No, because they knew the promises. They rejoiced and had joy in their great Savior. So it is with us. Whatever it is we face in this life, we can face such brokenness with joy and rejoicing. It's easier said than done. I am more than aware of that. But our Savior is a great Savior. And His promises hold true. We have this freedom from bondage. Think of Ephesians 2. We were all once, what, slaves to the flesh. Christ has broken that control of sin. Think of David and Goliath. David and Goliath is not a picture of you conquering your great enemies. David is a shadow of Christ conquering our great enemy of sin and death. Freedom from what is certain defeat, certain bondage. Full and final victory secured by Jesus Christ, by this Emmanuel. In verse 3, point 3, I'm sorry, the hope and the promise that we have mentioned. The hope and the promise are both fully and totally rooted in one singular person. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. These things cannot be separated from one another. And we cannot find such joy, such promise, such hope in something else. Just as, just as 2 plus 2 equals 4... So it is that our joy and our hope are only and correctly found in this Emmanuel. Another son, right? We've talked about these sons, the sons of Isaiah. These sons that Isaiah spoke about who were not his sons. Emmanuel, God with us. Here's what Isaiah writes about this son. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see the promise of verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 and the hope of verse 1 are fixed firmly and only in the son. In this child of nine, or I'm sorry, of six and seven. Fixed only there. This child who was born for to us a child is born born of a woman born of flesh and blood like hebrews 2 which we perfectly read this morning this god man broken in taking on flesh and blood to be like us to be like us what are we that you are mindful of us, to quote that song and to quote the scriptures? He's born of a woman, and he is given by God. 
this virgin birth, Isaiah 7, 14, this child born of a virgin, his name Emmanuel, born of a woman, given by God, this son. Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, a son born, a child born, a son given, with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make Mary as your wife, to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. A child is born, a son is given. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And listen to this. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here he goes to quote Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until... She had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. God with us. Let us us never, ever take such a phrase for granted. He tells us more about what this Jesus is going to be, what this Emmanuel is going to do. 6b, right? He is the upholder of government. Not ours, not the American government, but of his kingdom. He is the centerpiece of God's kingdom. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the upholder of his kingdom. He is wonderful counselor, or more, more, uh, more accurately, wonder counselor. He is a supernatural counselor, right? What does the 1689 tell us? We've read this before. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in himself and, <clears throat> and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended. This is the same essence of Jesus, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality dwelling in light which no man can approach. But here are the qualities, right? We talk about this wonder counselor. He is immutable. He is immense. He is eternal. eternal. He is incomprehensible. He is almighty. He is in every way Every way infinite, he is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, 
wonder counselor, working all things according to what? To the counsel of his will. This is our Jesus. Our Jesus. He is mighty God. This warrior, military term, conquering God. Now, not conquering as in the way the the Muslims or Islam thinks of conquering, as by sword around the globe. No. This conquering is by conversion, by second birth, as Jesus says to Nicodemus. This expansion of his kingdom, not by military might, but by the work of the Spirit, converting hearts and giving rebirth. He is everlasting Father. Now, not to condense the Trinity into one person, let's be clear here. This is not saying that Jesus and the Father are one person. They are saying that Jesus, this everlasting Father, has the same roles as a benevolent, loving, good, caring Father. One who shepherds his children faithfully. He is everlasting, eternal, timeless. He is this Prince of Peace. Prince of Shalom. This absence of violence and conflict, but also this presence of peace with God. This presence of restoration vertically, restoration horizontally with God and with our brothers. This idea of well-being and rest. His rule and reign has begun and will never end. I'm going to run through this last part for the sake of time. He calls here, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. Remember, David has been dead for some time now. But we think back to 2 Samuel 7 and these covenants that God has enacted with his people. This covenant of 2 Samuel 7, you can read it later for the sake of time. But this promise to David that there will be one who sits upon his throne for all of eternity. And here Isaiah, it is echoing that promise and saying that that promise is Jesus who will sit on the throne of David. So let us be explicit about this. Emmanuel, God with us, Messiah, Savior, the God-man, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, this benevolent, everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace, is the only, the only way in which this promise and this hope applies to us. quote J.I. Packer, the Christmas message is that there is a hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. And so we see that. In the celebration of the incarnation, we are celebrating the Lord and Savior's work for us. Out of our distress, out of our darkness, out of our gloom, out of our anguish, out of our tragedy, out of our brokenness, out of our death. We have been brought. We have been bought out of our 
bondage. By this light that has broken forth, by this light that shines in on Christmas Day, this light that has come. And it is in Jesus, right, that we find this redemption, this being bought back, this being purchased, quite literally purchased by what? By his blood. Jesus, taking on flesh and blood, the second Adam, hark the herald angels sing, I've said it several times over Advent, my favorite Christmas hymn, the second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. His active obedience. Fulfilling God's law. Doing what Adam was supposed to do, but failed to do. Doing what we are expected to do and cannot do. Jesus came and did. His passive obedience. This life of suffering. This death of suffering. Paying the penalty for our sins upon the cross. The incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation was, as Packer said, to restore us to God. And to restore us to God, we see what, hap- what Hebrews tells us. Is that he became the propitiation. He became the whipping boy. He became the one who bore our sins. The wrath of God, which we were supposed to take, which we are supposed to receive, was poured out upon the Son who broke in at the Incarnation. Was poured out upon the Emmanuel, God with us. That is why we celebrate the Incarnation. That is why we cannot separate the Incarnation from Easter. Because the purpose of the incarnation was the work of restoration and redemption completed at his resurrection. And finally and fully done when he returns. You see, this hope that we have only is found in this one who broke in. This one who lived the perfect life and died the death that we deserve. I wanted to read the Nicene Creed as we finish this sermon. Something I don't know that we've ever done here in this church. But the Nicene Creed on this incarnation Christmas morning says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, right? Think of what we were just talking about, the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, God himself breaking in. God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him 
All things were made. Remember, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He is the one upholding it. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He, has uh, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. You see, that is part of the incarnation. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in the one holy Catholic little c apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. You see, that is orthodoxy that is our faith that we hold and cling to that is what the incarnation means not just carols and you know this not just carols and presents though that does create much happiness and rejoicing the true joy and rejoicing is the promise and the hope that come from the messiah who broke in and died and rose and will come back and I love the way Isaiah finishes this passage of chapter 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, as the promises that were made 700 years before the birth of Jesus came to pass at the year zero on the timeline, these promises that he said would happen, happened. And so... The promise still stands. The zeal of the Lord will do this. The promise remains and his return one day, whether imminent or far off, will happen. And the final and full restoration of those who see the hope and cling to the promise of this one singular Savior Messiah will come to pass. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, I don't know. I don't know what, how that was communicated this morning, Lord, but I pray that you are glorified and you are magnified and we cling to your great son. As we celebrate the remainder of this day, and I'm sure we celebrate tomorrow, and we celebrate every single day as we gather and worship every Lord's Day by your will, Lord, let us celebrate this incarnation and this work that you have done, that your Son has done, that your Spirit is doing on behalf of a bunch of sinners. Lord, we know that you will do this by your promise. You will hold us and keep us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go please stand.